Today is October 23rd, 2022. Do you suffer from gear acquisition syndrome? I know I do. Buckle your seatbelts and welcome to this edition of the Electric Guitar Lives podcast with Pete Williams. A fun and pithy celebration of the electric guitar, guitarists, related gear, and industry news from a seasoned guitar pro. Get your daily dose of all things guitar from an industry insider with over 20 years in the proverbial trenches. Be regaled with sordid tales of guitar and guitar news, amps, effects, artists, luthiers, and the interesting people that make up this wacky machine. So wind down with us as we cap each week off with a fresh out of the oven episode. Who knows what will happen? Maybe you'll laugh, maybe you'll cry. You might even learn something. Yeah, maybe you won't. But one thing's for sure, you'll be entertained. So hang with us for a bit, and thank you for joining us on the Electric Guitar Lives Podcast. Now here's your host, Pete Williams. Hello, hello, what's going on folks? Appreciate you uh, tuning in to another episode of the Electric Guitars Podcast. This is episode number 10. Today's show, we're going to be talking about Marty Friedman, uh, his impact on me as a guitar player, but also his impact on the industry and and an ocean of fans out there and uh, why he was so, uh, and why he still is, one of the most unique guitar players uh, that are out there currently. Now here's a message from our sponsor, Making Music. Hey folks, did you know that Making Music is the number one dealer for custom Fender guitars in the world? That's a big deal. Making Music has been the original home of tone since 1973. And for over 40 years, we've been committed to meeting the needs of our customers. Actually, almost 50 years. Making Music offers a hand-picked selection of premium boutique and custom gear. Our Northfield, Illinois showroom is open and comfortable with private, soundproof demonstration rooms for a pleasant shopping environment, while our website is regularly updated with an incredible array of custom electric guitars, tube amplifiers, and effects pedals. Knowledgeable and courteous sales professionals are always available to help make sure The gear you want is the best choice to suit your needs. Whether you're looking to pick up a new hobby, push sonic boundaries, or simply to tweak your tone, making music is the place. Now, uh, before we get started, I've talked a little bit, I guess, about myself. You're probably thinking, hey, who is this guy and what's he talking about? Um, So, uh, my background actually is in, uh, you know, computer science and, uh, and, um, software, uh, engineering. Um, I got my start way back in the day. I opened up, I started doing uh, freelance web design stuff back in, uh, you know, the mid, uh, to late nineties. And, uh, one of the things that came along at that time, uh, during that dot-com boom, uh, was a technology that I'm sure a lot of you are aware of that was called Flash. And Macromedia had put this out. I think it's owned by Adobe now. And uh, that's something that I saw is like, okay, this is the future because it turned websites into this real, you know, this kind of like multimedia 
frenzy. So I really got into this uh, while I was in uh, college, and um, and it took off for me. I started doing stuff, and then word kind of got out, um, you know, in the uh, Tampa Bay area. And um, I winded up doing a website for a, uh, a popular and famous nightclub uh, in Ybor City called the Amphitheater. And this was a really big deal at the time. Um, it winded up winning some awards and, uh, you know, I got recognition around the world from people seeing this website. Um, a friend of mine was really just kind of blown away by it, and uh, he winded up knowing another guy. You know how this stuff works. Um, and that person was David Vincent of the uh, famous or the heavy metal band Morbid Angel, uh, if you guys are familiar with that. Um, David really took notice of the work that I had done, and um he had already been an artist for uh, Armadillo Enterprises. He's a bass player. He's been uh, a bass player for many years and, uh, and definitely a guy that's hip on the, the scene in the Tampa Bay area as far as music. And um, one of the friends that he had that he wanted to show that work to and said, hey, you guys check out this guy's work is um is elliot rubinson the late elliot rubinson of thoroughbred music and armadillo enterprises which is dean guitars d drum and luna guitars this is around 1999 2000 time frame at the time they had a uh, static website that was done for them um by uh, bill lewington in the united kingdom um, was kind of helping them with their site, and it was really, really primitive. I mean, that again, this is like, you know, late 90s. This was back, uh, you know, when uh, there were a lot of uh, under-construction signs on pages and flapping chickens and all this type of thing. Uh, anyhow, so David got me into the door, and, uh, you know, I had known who uh, Elliot was. I mean, my dad was friends with him. Um, back when Thoroughbred Music... Uh, before they got big, super big, um, and, uh, you know, we purchased a lot of gear, and, you know, I basically grew up at Thoroughbred Music when I was younger. Uh, I was up there every weekend. Anyhow, so it got me in the door, and, um, um, you know, me now as an adult, and uh, uh, Elliot was on the fence about this because I guess he had been uh, hosed by a few people in terms of getting web help and this type of thing, Um so I told him, I said, well, I'll tell you what, let me do this. I'll put together um, a cool demo, and I'll come back, and we'll, we'll meet up next week, and we'll go from there. At that time, Armadillo Enterprises uh, was over in Clearwater, Florida. It was over by the airport uh, in Clearwater, and um, it wasn't a super big operation, um, he was basically getting back into the marketplace. He had sold off Thoroughbred Music to Sam Ash. Um, and, you know, so Thoroughbred basically didn't exist anymore or existed in a different iteration. That iteration basically is Sam Ash Music. Anyhow, a little history lesson there. Um, so I went back home and I said, okay, man, this is a good opportunity for me because, you know, I had been a guitar player. Of course, I wasn't into the guitar at that time because I was, you know, uh, thinking about a career 
And, you know, it just wasn't in my head. But I thought, okay, well, you know, it beats working for an insurance company or something like that. So I literally worked all night and did this entire, like, flash demo with all this cool whiz-bang stuff. And I used Pat Travers, who was an artist at the time, uh, for the demo. And I got my ducks in a row and came back next week to meet with Elliot. The demo was cool, and it was cool enough that it landed me the uh, the gig uh, with Armadillo Enterprises, and so that got my foot into the uh, the door of the music industry with one of the biggest players in the industry and in the world, for that matter, at that time. Now, this was a small operation, as I said. Uh, it was in a, a small little warehouse center, kind of tucked away in a nice part of Clearwater, and his crew at the time, this was pre-Dean uh, Zielinski. He had not brought Dean back. And um, the, the guy that was running the guitar department at the time was Ben Chafin, who was responsible for a lot of the uh, designs um, for the products back then. Uh, and one of the other guys that he had on the scene that had been with uh, Dean Guitars for a very long time was the... Uh, was Pat Baker, who's still with the company. And uh, if anyone knows anything about uh, Dean Guitars or anybody in the industry, if I mention the name Pat Baker, you should know who he is. He's one of the cornerstone guys over in Armadillo Enterprises. And he's also one of these guys that's better than 99.9% of the artists, regardless of the brand. Um, He's just an amazing dude that grew up in the guitar world. And uh, knows knows everything about it. And if there was ever anyone that you wanted to work on your guitar, this was the guy. Now, in terms of marketing, they had a marketing girl there, um, and I won't say her name, but uh, um, she was uh, she came from the school, the um, uh, from from you know more. Uh, educated approach to marketing, uh, but she didn't at the time really understand the uh, the guitar market. I felt, um, you know, I grew up in the guitar market. I was a guitar consumer, so I had a really good understanding of what I thought was cool. And uh, you know, for anyone that kind of grew up in the '80s, um, you know, where there was that was the scene right there. You know, it was it just exploded? Um, I had a pretty good idea of what I thought would be cool. Um, to put together for these guys. So I got to work and started building, um, you know, the, uh, the foundation, so to speak, you know, um, for what would be a huge marketing machine for, for Armadillo Enterprises and guitars, um, you know, for many years to come and really kind of still is, but it's not the same at that time, because the technology was still kind of new uh, they didn't understand. They didn't know how to approach a, you know, a web guy, so to speak. I was the web guy. They didn't know what to do with me. Um, so uh, for the times that I did go up there, um, they basically took a workstation and stuck it in a hallway, uh, no internet connection or anything like that, and uh, gave me a very kind of base model computer to work with um, to get started. After about two weeks of being constantly uh, interrupted and bombarded for anyone out there that knows, like, hey, with your IT department, you know, you kind of have to let them do their thing. You know, you hold them accountable, obviously, but it's not like uh, uh, with technology where, you know, the common assumption out there is that you're, you know, that you just wave a couple uh, um, 
wave a magic wand and all this stuff kind of materializes. They didn't understand that there's a whole science to this and, and planning and all this. But so I said, uh, Hey guys, I, I can't do this, you know, sitting in a hallway. I need to work on my own gear. So I left and, uh, you know, I don't think they were particularly happy about that, but, uh, you know, it, it just wasn't a good situation for me. Uh, once I was able to do that and uh, work unencumbered on my own gear, um, you know, I had a pretty decent machine at the time. Um, you know, things started um, rolling a lot better. What I didn't know at the time is that while this was getting built, the website and, you know, this initial marketing machine, um, Elliot had additional plans. And those additional plans, including bringing back Dean Zelensky. Now, Dean's name is on the headstock, so yes, obviously it makes mis- you know complete sense to um, bring back the guy that founded it. Who would know better, right? Once Dean came into the picture, there was a tectonic shift um, in the direction of what I was working on um, and the direction of the company. There was a lot of pushback from the existing people that were down there because, uh, you know, they didn't want an outside party, um, in this case, that outside party being Dean or myself, uh, telling them uh, a better path or a better way of of going about, you know, um, putting the band back together, so to speak. Uh, in this case, you know, building Dean Guitars back up to uh, its former glory. To give you an example of where they were at, Dean Guitars, the company, uh, they had an ad with a, a dude with no hair whatsoever, and he was painted blue, and it said, be one with your Dean, and this was in reference to some uh, blue acoustic guitar that they had put out that they were marketing. Now, obviously, they needed some uh, some marketing help with this, um, you know, because that just wasn't cutting the mustard. At the time... Uh, they had a couple of artists back on board. Uh, one of the OGs was Eric Peterson of Testament. I'm sure you're familiar familiar with him. They had Pat Travers and a few other cats. Um, you know, Elliot himself was a bass player, actually a very killer bass player. He he could really groove, man. This guy, he was the real deal. Um, so he knew a lot of guys just through his connections and. Uh, and his networking um so you know there were you know the guitar player i forget his name but the guitar player from weird owl um or was it the bass player i forget but he had great connections so there was a stable of guys that were playing their stuff and uh you know one thing about elliot and armadillo at that time was uh he was really good about uh, trying to put something out there for everyone and by that, I mean, they, you know, from his retail background, they wanted to make sure, okay, look, we got, we have banjos, we have mandolins, we have acoustic guitars, we have different levels of acoustic guitars, we have different levels of electric guitars, you know, if you could, you know, depending on your, your, your budget, uh, if you wanted a, a, you know, swanky USA guitar, they had that division. If you wanted, um, you know, uh, if you didn't want that type of thing or you didn't have a couple thousand or three thousand dollars to spend on a USA guitar, um, you know, they had something for you, whatever you were into. Uh, so if you went in, 
walking into a store and you had X budget, there was something there um, for everyone. And I always thought that was cool about Armadillo, um, that they took that approach. You know, it's very kind of uh, loftier um, goal. Now, I'm going to elaborate on that more later um, as the company formed and kind of grew over the years. Um, and the thing that I think for you as the listener that you're going to enjoy is that uh, no one's really ever giving the straight story about, hey, what happened with uh, Dean Guitars? Hey, what happened with the people there? What was going on behind the scenes? You know, and I'd like to give the straight dope of what actually happened at Armadillo Enterprises from that point up until recent times. Um, and we'll get into all that stuff. I'll talk about it in future episodes because it's, you know, it's interesting. And I think it's good that, uh, you know, maybe you as a listener kind of get an inside track into, uh, you know, sometimes how screwed up this industry can be. Anyhow... Please be sure to tune in to uh, episodes later on down the road. Uh, I will talk about uh, those particular eras um, of that company and, uh, you know, my involvement with it and uh, some of the stuff that happened because uh, there were some real milestone stuff in the industry uh, that I felt that uh, I myself had put together along with Dean and, uh, and a couple of other folks. Um, they were pioneering. So... Tune in later, and we'll talk about that some more. If you uh, if you're if you're into listening to um, things about this industry, that is actual things about this you know this industry beyond the um, you know ocean of speculation that goes on on YouTube. First up in news here, we got uh, from Guitar.com, and I quote, Gibson alleges Dean is still in contempt of court for continuing to advertise its V and Z guitars. Um, what's interesting about this article is they have a, a picture of Kerry King playing his, uh, his artist model, which has nothing to do with this court case. And just folks out there, just to let you know, um, you know, this has to do with the uh, the models, the V Dean V and the Dean Z that started back in the 70s during the uh, company's inception. Those are the items that Gibson has a problem with, not the Kerry King guitar. Um, I have a different story about that one for a different show, but uh, I just found it interesting. And, you know, for you guys at Guitar.com, if you're publishing this news, it's 
kind of out of context. <laughs> Anyhow, um, so this new filing calls again for Dean's parent company, Armadillo, to be found in contempt of court for failing to comply with this ruling. As evidence, it includes screenshots of Dean's 2021 product catalog, which is still hosted online and displays numerous Dean V and Dean Z guitars. Armadillo was, quote, permanently enjoyed from the manufacturer advertisement and or sale of these guitars by a court ruling earlier this year. The new filing reads, to Gibson's surprise, it appears that none of the images complained about in the reply brief have been removed despite displaying guitars containing counterfeits of Gibson trademarks. In fact, they have even clu- they have included even more images of the Dean V and Z in their catalog and even offer a new Dean V 2022 model for sale. That's interesting. So basically, long story short, and I don't know if this is article worthy, uh, there's a PDF online. So Armadillo powers it be uh, probably need to get the PDF taken down. In other news, and this is coming from uh, musicradar.com, and I quote, Fender CEO says company finding out half of new guitar players are female was a, quote, complete shocker. He also said revenue suggested many women bought guitars online following negative experiences in physical stores. Um, and I, I'm, you know, I'm basically quoting here from this article. Uh, it goes on. Fender CEO Andy Mooney has spoken again of his shock at discovering half of new guitar players are female, a percentage of the company had underestimated previously. The company's research following Mooney's arrival at the company in 2015 unearthed data that would dictate its roadmap in the following years and came from the CEO's desire to find out who was buying Fender guitars. Everyone had an opinion, but nobody had any data, Mooney told Entrepreneur. So we gathered it, and out, out of that came five insights that guide everything we've done since. Uh, you guys can go to Music Radar and check that guitar out for yourself. It's not surprising um, that the data reflects this. However, I feel like this article is kind of skewed somewhat as the before this article, you know, and this was published six days ago, um, Fender had the metrics and they had the data about this whole thing prior to then, which is, you know, what happened when they went and launched their... Uh, um, you know their online guitar series. If you've, you know, if you paid attention to that, uh, for getting video instruction online from them, um, they've really crafted something um, that wasn't centered uh, around the old way of doing things in the uh, in the guitar industry, which is they were catering to dudes. Um, very systematically, they started rolling out with. Um, um, that um, type of marketing, uh, you know, a few years ago. Uh, so they had an understanding that this was going to happen. They tried to be as neutral as possible in their marketing efforts. So this is no surprise, not to me. Anyways, and also being on the ground floor of 
uh, a couple of competing brands and knowing uh, who's buying those guitars, you can see the trends of this type of thing. Anyhow, I can see where gals probably don't want to go into a guitar store. It makes me think of the uh, the Extract movie, if you watch the beginning of that, where um, Milo Kunis goes into the Sam Ash or the Guitar Center, and you've got the dudes there that are, you know, obviously... Uh, uh, enamored with her and she's able to steal a guitar out of the store <laughs> you know that's just the, <laughs> i don't think that's the case really at most guitar shops uh, but you know uh, it's it's a funny example if you haven't seen that movie I, you know anything from my judge is gold in my opinion you should watch it in our last news segment um you know i didn't I'm trying not to do too many uh, product-centric things because there's plenty of that out here. But uh, this caught my eye. This article is from Premier Guitar. It goes on, and I quote, Friedman announces Little Sister Heads and Combo. Combo, excuse me. The Little Sister is a 20-watt EL84-powered single-channel head or 112 combo based on its 40-watt predecessor but still delivers the signature British tone Friedman has become known for. The amp features one channel that gives you everything from gorgeous sparkling cleans to a glorious vintage crunch. Extremely versatile, the little sister can produce many styles of music from blues to rock and country by adjust, adjusting the gain in master switch, S-switch gain structure, and B-switch, bright, tight. The handcrafted in the USA cabinetry features tongue and groove Baltic birch construction, and the, the combo houses a 16 ohm 12 inch Celestian cream back G12 M65 speaker that delivers the bass, mid response, and signature sound you would expect from a Friedman amp. Um, you know, be sure to head over to Premier Guitar. Friedman uh, caught my eye. A while back through uh, making music actually you know from looking all ogling at all the gear on the makingmusic.com website um, I started paying a little bit more attention to them and uh, you know of course looking at data and metrics and things like that I'm not the only one who's been paying attention um, I'm a huge fan of this whole kind of uh, smaller um, space saving effort that the guitar amplifier companies are doing um, you know they're they're really giving you a lot in a small package. And for as well-engineered as this stuff is, I believe these are going for suggested retail of $14.99.99. Uh, and you can get the combo for $17.99.99. I mean, a guitar amp is such a big part of your, your sound and your tone and your approach. Uh, you know, anything from Friedman is, is going to be top quality. Um, but uh, I would pay attention to these guys in particular uh, because in, in the world of tone, in that quest for tone, uh, you know, you want the best, and Friedman's one of the best companies out there, at least for me in my humble opinion. Now here's a message from our sponsor, Making Music. Hey folks, we have a promo going on between now and Friday, December 2nd. Our generous sponsor, Making Music, is offering up not one, but two chances to win two boutique guitar effects pedals from One Control by Bjorn Jewel. All you have to do is subscribe to our email list and listen to the podcast between now 
and Friday, December 2nd, 2022, for the winning announcements. Two lucky listeners will get a chance to own A, fluorescent orange overdrive, and B, Baltic blue fuzz pedal from One Control Guitar Effects. To enter, please visit electricguitarlives.com and click the One Control Guitar Effects giveaway link. Real simple, guys. Just subscribe to the email list. Check out the uh, the demo videos and listen to the podcast. We're going to be announcing those winners, uh, some two of winners basically, uh, sometime between now and December second. So uh, be sure to tune in and listen to that and get a chance to uh, to own an amazing uh, boutique guitar effects pedal from One Control. So in today's Gear Spotlight, we're going to be talking about the Evertune Bridge. Um, now, I have been a, um, a guitar player now for a pretty long time, and um, one of the things that I always found, uh, well, I used to find frustrating until uh, Futone started putting out their instructional videos, because I really never researched it beyond that, was uh, doing... Uh, uh, Floyd Rose setups, uh, string changes, and not just limited to the Floyd Rose, um, which is not limiting at all. Floyd Rose is a great bridge. I love it. But um, also just dealing with uh, thinner bridges and, and, and more fixed bridges, hardtail style, stop tails, unlike, uh, you know, the Gibson Les Paul and whatnot. Uh, tuning's always been a problem, and I've, I'm typically a light player. I've known some players over the years that really strangle the notes on the guitar, um, like Marty Friedman, who we're going to talk about today, and other players. And uh, one thing that's always tough is dealing with tuning issues and tuning stability. Now, I'm not going to go into the whole history of the company. I'm sure you guys out there are aware of Evertune and what this bridge entails, uh, but I will talk about some key points. Uh, now, this week I pulled the trigger. I have been gassing uh, about getting another ESP LTD. Uh, I picked up a second one. And as an aside, I mean, hats off to the guys at ESP for putting out such quality stuff uh, at the price points. Uh, they're really, really, really doing a killer job, in my opinion. Um, so I was gassing about the Eclipse, which is their uh, single cutaway model, um, and uh, I'm still gassing about it. There's another model I'm looking at uh, and thinking about picking up, uh, but what I did pick up uh, was an EC1000 uh, Evertune guitar in a beautiful black matte finish. Uh, it's got EMGs in it and an Evertune bridge. And man, oh man, I mean, the quality of guitar that you can get these days, just absolutely unreal. I love it. But enough about that guitar, which you know, I'll talk about in more detail eventually. Um, let's talk about uh, how great of a bridge and uh, an invention this thing is and, and what that means to uh, someone that plays guitar all the time and um, whether jamming with other people or recording. Um, out of the box, the guitar was in tune, <laughs> which, you know, is unheard of. Usually you have to make a couple of minor adjustments, uh, but thankfully the guys at Liberty Music here in Florida, uh, who I bought it from, um, did a nice setup on it, you know, low action and all that jazz, and it was in tune perfectly when I got it. 
I pulled my guitar out and uh, plugged it into uh, one of my amplifiers and uh, proceeded to uh, give it a test run like I do all my stuff and and I played straight for like an hour. I tried or attempted to make the guitar go out of tune, um, bending and um, you know doing just some really expressive vibrato. It's playing over um, um, A minor blues jazz. Uh, not jazz, excuse me, a minor blues backing track, and um, and it didn't go out of tune. In fact, it's still in tune. Um, I've played it every day now for about an hour each day, and um, it's still in tune. Um, amazing. So for those that don't know, what's interesting about the Evertune Bridge, uh, you know, there's nothing battery-operated or anything like this. I think, uh, at least initially when it came out, I thought it was another one of those kind of uh, robo-tuner Gibson kind of things, right? Which I had on a, a Gibson SG. Uh, that thing, uh, the battery, <laughs> and this is just a quick side story. Um, I had shipped it out to a guy who bought that SG off me, and uh, apparently, you know, like, I, I forgot, I, I spaced out and left the battery inside the tuner apparently when it shipped out um, the it was it was tuning the guitar I guess when it was getting bounced around and snapped the headstock off that sucked uh, but that's a story for a different day with the Evertune bridge what's cool about it is it's purely mechanical I think about it in terms of like a really fine uh, watch you know the engineering that they did to put this thing together is just brilliant um, each string has its own spring attached to it, so it's like it's it's almost like its own little floating bridge per string, uh, which I think is genius. And the way uh, that it stays in tune is based off of the tension of that spring and the string, and a couple of other adjustments that you're able to do with your the tool that they include with the guitar. Just ingenious. Now, guys, uh, you know, Evertune is not paying me for an endorsement. I'm just a fan of technology that um, helps you just enjoy your in instrument more. If there's anything, at the end of the day, um, this thing has proven to me that, yes, it absolutely does work. It stays in tune. Uh, it's a big, giant hunk of steel made with, uh, you know, contraption with a... Uh, with all good quality parts in it. Um, my guitar sustains like crazy, uh, so it's not a hindrance in that regard. If you watch some online um, instructional videos on how to use it for drop tuning and things of that nature, um, once you get the hang of it, man, it's really, really easy. Anyhow, it is pricey and is usually reserved for your more premium guitars out there. Uh, I know Kiesel is offering the um, the Evertune Bridge as an option on some of their models, which is cool. Um, and there's boutique guys out there that are utilizing it. But uh, for ESP to have it with their LTD series in their lineup, uh, man, it's just it's worth checking out, worth looking into. I encourage you to go, you know, find one at your at your local guitar shop uh, and give this thing a whirl. Um, I Personally, again, would prefer to spend most of my free time playing the guitar and having a good time, uh, not, you know, um, dealing with tuning issues. 
So if uh, you're in the same boat, um, you know, please, you know, check this thing out, man. It's it's cool. It's um, it's something that I think will become bigger on the scene a little bit later on. If you do a lot of home recording, um, this thing's a must, especially when you're laying down your tracks and uh, you want to make sure that your your instrument stays in tune. Evertune, check it out. artist spotlight we're going to be talking about marty friedman now to many guitar fans out there um you know most folks uh know marty from from megadeth from his time with megadeth and the amazing guitar playing that he did on their records um i'm going to say for me most notably rest in peace no offense to chris poland um from the um P-Cell's album, but Marty's stuff on uh, on his uh, introductory record, Rust in Peace, and all of the other albums that he played on, and I don't mean to, you know, belittle the other uh, Megadeth albums, they're all equally fantastic, okay? I just happen to love his stuff specifically on Rust in Peace. Now, I wasn't introduced to Marty Friedman from, you know, through Megadeth. You know, I had already been a Megadeth fan. Um, you know, I liked the stuff that they had done, and I felt that, uh, you know, especially after all that had gone down with Metallica, because I was a Metallica fan at the time of his departure. And by his departure, I mean Dave Mustaine. Um, you know, I was definitely a fan. His first record, that first Megadeth record, really grabbed me. And I was instantly a fan. When P-Cells came out, you know, I, I remember walking, you know, almost three miles to get, go to the record shop to be, you know, to pick that record up, to bring it back and, and give it a nice listen over the weekend. I was introduced to Marty through Shrapnel Records, which I was following. And at that time, I was really big into, uh, you know, all these Guitar Hero guys and, and, uh, um, you know, I really liked buying all of the, the, the individual albums that were being put out through Shrapnel because I felt like that Mike Varney was really introducing us to a different world of these virtuoso guitar players um, who I felt not all of them were, you know, were Yngwie clones. These guys had very unique voices. Specifically, Marty Friedman, I felt, had the most unique voice out of all of them. Marty wasn't uh, a shredder, okay? Even though he could, he had the ability to play those types of things. He didn't. And I think just the unconventional way that he approached a guitar, um, the thing that really struck a chord with me, pun intended, um, was his uh, his attack and his approach uh, to the vibrato and for coloring outside the lines of conventional melodies and solos using some of the uh, more exotic pentatonic scales that he that he that he used that he he chose to use um very uh emotional player you could hear it i mean that the feeling was just pouring out of the speakers you know what i mean you could still go back 
Um, and not just his old stuff. I mean, look at his entire body of work and give it a listen, and uh, you'll see what I'm saying. I mean, it, he's got a different approach and uh, a very singular voice in this just, you know, uh, that onslaught of different guitar guys that were going on back then. Um, I, I felt, uh, you know, Marty was my favorite. Now, I have an interesting opinion on his time um, with Megadeth, and uh, and uh, which I'll get into later in this segment. And I think it's an interesting opinion. There's probably a few guys out there uh, that think the same thing that I do, or at least have thought about it. the uh, the song jewel or at least a snippet from it off of his um his uh, shrapnel records album dragon's kiss that um the music prior to me talking about marty uh, was from uh that was the ninja from uh i believe it's from the first cacophony record either way i mean you know marty should have um, um, a book um, put out about how to uh, uh, tastefully uh, play vibrato and <laughs> right, you know, right, and it should be in the Library of Congress. I mean, it, 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 if you you know listening to that snippet from the Joel just kind of takes me back to when when I heard it the first time, going, man, you know, uh, who is this guy? Um, he's really got something to say here, you know, with his expressive playing and his his choice of notes. Now, this is quoted from um, Wikipedia. <clears throat> Martin Adam Friedman, born December 8, 1962, is an American guitarist known for his tenure as a lead guitarist for heavy metal band Megadeth from 1990 to 2000. He is also known for playing alongside Jason Becker in Cacophony from 1986 until 1989, as well as his 13 solo albums and tours. Friedman has resided in Tokyo, Japan since 2003, where he has appeared on over 700 wild Japanese television programs such as Rock Fujiyama, Hebemeda-san, Kuhaku Udagasen, and Jukebox English. He has released albums with several record labels, including Avex Tracks, Universal, EMI, Prosthetic, and Shrapnel Records. At the age of 14, after attending a KISS concert, Friedman took up the guitar and is largely self-taught. Now, just as an aside here, to me, the, the fact that Marty's self-taught, that, crazy. Anyhow, uh, the, the article goes on. He rushed to form a band and started playing original songs. 
The reason being that the originals are easier to play than covers. Because, he says, even if you screw up, you can just claim that the song is written like that and no one can challenge you. <laughs> the mother of one of Friedman's friends ran an event center with a two-level stage and Friedman and his friends used as a rehearsal space. Soon word spread about their band and since they were in a rural area, people would come from miles around to socialize and listen to music. Rehearsals very quickly became live shows. Friedman formed and played lead guitar in several other bands, including Deuce, Hawaii, which had previously been called Vixen, and most notably Cacophony. Cacophony featured neoclassical metal elements and synchronized twin guitar harmonies and counterpoints shared with guitarist Jason Becker. He played guitar on the 1987 excuse me, 1987 album It Won't Be Long by Christian rock band Shout. In 1988, he recorded demos for Jet Red that eventually were released as bonus tracks on the 2009 Jet Red release Flight Plan. In August of 1988, he released his first solo album, Dragon's Kiss. And that's when Pete Williams of the Electric Guitar Lives podcast became a fan. <laughs> when Cacophony disbanded in 1989, Friedman auditioned for the thrashed metal band Megadeth after a tip from his friend Bob Nalbandian. Friedman officially joined Megadeth in February of 1990. Friedman's audition can be seen on the Megadeth DVD Arsenal of Megadeth. I think it's on YouTube as well. Uh, the first album he recorded with them was Rust in Peace, which was released on September 24th, 1990. Rest in Peace was certified platinum by the RIAA in 1994 and was nominated for the Best Metal Performance Grammy at the 33rd Grammy Awards. Now, you can go on and, and read all this stuff about him. I, I feel really to uh, appreciate the artist, Marty Friedman. Um, you got to go and listen to his entire body of work. And I would say, you know, as a suggestion, um, start off with his Shrapnel Records album, Dragon's Kiss. I would follow that up with Scenes, which, which was released by Marty in 1992. And then uh, a couple of his other later releases that I'm a real big fan of are uh, Inferno, which was released in 2014, and Wall of Sound, which was released in 2017. Now, I realize Megadeth may not be everyone's cup of tea, um, but if you really want to see uh, somebody break outside the norm of traditional uh, lead guitar playing, um, and, you know, I, I imagine he had a great deal of assistance, too, in the songwriting department on that record, um, but, you know, give him a listen on uh, Megadeth's first record and all their subsequent albums as well. I feel his contribution to Megadeth um, cemented them as one of the best metal bands ever. You know, Dave's a great songwriter too, Dave Mustaine. Um, and I love Dave as, I respect Dave as a songwriter. And uh, him and Marty collaborating together was solid gold, in my opinion. Now, if you go back and, uh, or if you take the time now to research um, his departure from Nagadeth, and I had talked about this earlier. Uh, in the podcast, um, I feel Marty's contribution to Megadeth during that time uh, was a lot bigger than what's, you know, released out there in the public. I know Dave Mustaine has admitted 
uh, that every person that's been in the band at some point or another has contributed in some fashion. But it's clear to me that uh, Marty contributed uh, a lot more than most if you go back and listen to that stuff because Megadeth kind of, after Rust in Peace, you know, I felt like Dave wanted to get all that speed metal out of his system create something really heavy and ferocious and all this stuff and technically complex. I mean, cause you know, man, that stuff's hard to play. Right. Um, and their style and their vibe changed up after that. I felt and I felt like they were, you know, really kind of shifting man. And, um, uh, you know, I go back and listen to that stuff now and, um, you know, it's genius. Uh, but anyways, I digress. I'm just, I'm just saying I feel that Marty's contribution to Megadeth was a lot more uh, than what's been released to the public. And I feel that really that's the main reason why he left the band. And in my opinion, I feel that if maybe, um, you know, I can understand why Dave Mustaine would be kind of tight about his scenario, especially after having gone down with all the stuff that happened with Metallica and if you've read Dave's book you know he didn't have the easiest life so I completely get where he's coming from and protecting his brand and and all that stuff however out of all the guys that have crossed paths with Dave Mustaine I feel the guy that he should have embraced the most uh, outside of Nick Menza uh, was Marty Friedman in a parallel universe version of that scenario, Marty's still with the group, and uh, they've gone on to make some really great music together, and uh, fans worldwide rejoice. So back to the Wiki article, and I quote, Friedman is known for his um, improvisation and for fusing Eastern music with Western music and other styles, such as neoclassical, thrash metal, and later progressive rock. When playing, he often uses arpeggiated chords and various customized scales and arpeggios, some of which relate to Asian, Chinese and Japanese, Middle Eastern, and other exotic scales, which are different from the typical minor major pentatonic and seven modes based on the major scale. As a right-handed guitarist, Friedman has an unorthodox picking technique. The angle which his hand is clenched goes against the conventional palm mute frequently used by right-handed players in metal music. He also frequently utilizes upstrokes as opposed to downstrokes, especially on the B and high E strings. Rather than strictly picking from his elbow or wrist, Friedman will also pick moving his fingers, a technique known as circle picking. Uh, and now this this quote here from this uh, wiki article, this one's uh, kind of an interesting Thing, and I put it as the uh, the subject of this episode. Friedman is critical of being called a shredder. He opined that the term is a guy who plays fast, meaningless stuff all the time. Not the word stuff. Shredders are the guys in your friend's basement who play insanely fast. And it just looks so mind-blowing and amazingly cool with their f- fingers flying all around the neck. But if you close your eyes and actually listen, what you hear is a pile of beep. Y'all know what I'm talking about. I think it's interesting that, you know, whoever contributed to the wiki article uh, ends it on that line. And (laughs) who knows, maybe Marty's party uh, threw that in there because he doesn't want to be associated with uh, that term shredding, Um, which I completely understand. 
it's easy to uh, generalize players and lump them into a certain grouping. And although Marty Freeman came from um, the Shrapnel Records lineup, you know, he was part of that talent. Um, you know, these guys that, that came from there, uh, they're all individually um I mean, they're all individuals. I mean, they're unique musicians in their own right, and they're all, they all have their own voice. And if you look at not only Marty's uh, uh, career arc, and you look at the other musicians that were on that label, it's interest- it, interesting to see where they started from and where they're at now, including Paul Gerbert, who we talked about in the last episode. Um, you know, don't judge Marty based on that term. Sure, does he? Did he play in a heavy metal band? Does he play heavy stuff? Absolutely. But he is a musician at the end of the day. Uh, the guitar just happens to be his uh, his conduit for um, for the music that he likes. Ma- you know, that he likes making. Uh, he just has a different approach. Now, in closing, I found it interesting that in this article there was one person that wasn't mentioned here that I know for a fact. Um, was a huge influence on both Marty and um, Jason Becker. Uh, and I'm not talking about Ingve, I'm talking about Yuli Roth, Yuli uh, John Roth. Um, if you listen, or if you don't know of Yuli, or if you've never listened to him, um, and you go back and listen to some of his stuff that he did, uh, um, some of his solo albums, and the way that he plays, Yuli uh, was also a fan of using exotic scales. Uh, and he didn't just do the, I mean, he certainly pioneered the whole neoclassical thing. And some could argue that Ingve ripped him off completely. Um, I, you know, that's an argument for a different day. But in terms of the, um, uh, the melodic playing and the note choices and exotic scales and modes and, you know, bending the pentatonic scale um, uh, outside of the norm, um, Yuli was definitely an influence. And in next week's episode, um, that's who we're going to be talking about. We're going to be talking about Yuli John Roth. Hey, folks, I hope you're having a, a great day and I wish you the, uh, the best next week. As we get back into the uh, grind um, of our daily lives. Uh, anyways, have a great week. Thank you again for tuning in to the Electric Guitar Lives podcast. My name is Pete Williams. I appreciate you spending time with me. I really do. I hope you tune in next week. Like I said, we're going to be talking about Yuli John Roth and some other gear. I'm still working on some uh, some guest stuff. Uh, I'm a little anal about that, so I'm, I'm really putting some thought into it. Uh, and I wanted to do it in a different way than what's been done before. So I'm still working on it. But, uh, you know, still tune in, though, because we're going to have an interesting conversation about Yuli. I'll be going back and selecting some of my favorite pieces that he's done. And uh, we'll listen to him and talk about him and, and just have a good time. So thanks again for tuning in. And I hope you have a great week. Thanks for listening to the Electric Guitar Lives podcast with Pete Williams. Your weekly hang for all things guitar-related and more. Be sure to tune in next week for another exciting episode. And remember, have fun. See you next time. For more about this podcast and future episodes, be sure to visit electricguitarlives.com. Thanks again for listening.